Hello and welcome to the Wigtown Book Festival podcast. I'm your host, Peggy Hughes. I hope you're well and safe and warm as we bring you this episode of the podcast starring Polly Pular. No stranger to Wigtown Book Festival audiences as one of our wonderful chairpeople, the tables are turned as we hear about Polly's life and work as a wildlife rehabilitator and journalist, Perthshire's own Dr Doolittle. In this conversation, Polly tells us about a childhood spent in thrall to nature, introduces us to some of her menagerie and the stars of her books, including A Scurry of Squirrels, Nurturing the Wild. We talk about rewilding and the joys of nature during lockdown and at all other times too. I wanted you to take us right the way back, if you wouldn't mind, and just tell us a wee bit about how animals came into your life. It was really, really very early because as far as, as long as I can remember, I always wanted to be a vet. I was very influenced by a programme on television, which we always laugh about, called Daktari. And I think you're probably too young to remember it, but it was a wonderful programme where it was based in Africa. This vet and his partner raced around the bush, rescuing things all the time and sort of giving elephants blood transfusions and one thing and another. And I was really influenced by this. So myself and the little boy who lived next door used to do the same thing after school. And we used to race around the undergrowth looking for uh, needy fledglings and scraping things off the road. Uh, Occasionally we got hedgehogs and things. And that's really the start of it. But I was also incredibly influenced by Dr. Doolittle and Hugh Lofting. And I loved his books. Um, I'd been firstly influenced by Beatrix Potter. She will always be my most favourite author on the planet. But um, Hugh Lofting was very, very, very hot on her heels. And I just loved his books. And I wanted to talk to animals like he did. But our house was always full of animals. I remember my mother rescuing a baby badger when I was very, very young. And I remember we um, tried to keep it going. But sadly, after a week, it died. I was very upset about this. But I realised that if you love animals, you have to be prepared to prepare yourself for their departures because you know, usually they don't outlive you. So that was something I learned very early on. And but it never seems to get any easier, especially when you get attached to things, dogs in particular. It's a really important lesson for a young person to sort of see that the mortal side of, of things. I think so. I think there's also something really important that I learned from my mother um, was that you must always be prepared to let things go when they really need to go. And animals have that luxury that you can put them to sleep. You can get the vet to speed up their journey. And, you know, I think there's probably a lot of human beings who'd be very happy with that when they're really, really suffering. But, you know, with dogs, when they started to go downhill badly and were suffering, then mum explained to me that they'd have to get put to sleep. And, you know, I witnessed that from a very early age. And in a way, it was quite beautiful because they just seemed to just go all floppy and go. And although we missed them dreadfully, it was something that we could could do for them, which was amazing. I was always very inspired by that. So speaking of, you know, the animal, the fictional animals and the, the Dr. Doolittles and Beatrix Potters, nice to think that it was books that played a big role in that first love. Can you remember the first sort of real animals, I suppose, in your life? First pets, first wildlife encounters that kept you on the road? Yes, I definitely can, um, because I've just been writing about one encounter in particular, which was with a tawny owl. And I was just about to go to school and I always used to play outside before my mum took me to school. And I heard this very strange churring noise that I'd never heard before. I would have been about five, I suppose, at that point, four and a half, five. I'd only just started school. And I went out to investigate. And here was this most beautiful, beautiful chocolate brown owl sitting in the opening of this old stable block up in the window. 
And when it saw me, it, I noticed it had huge, big, round eyes, but then it narrowed these eyes down to slits, and I was just absolutely blown away. So I used to have a little bit of a trick when I was little, and I can remember it quite clearly, that I would pretend that I didn't feel at all well if I didn't want to go to school, which was pretty much all the time. So I told my mother I had a terrible stomachache. <laughs> she didn't believe me. But I remember sitting in the classroom and not paying attention to anything that was going on. But I do remember that every time the teacher did an O or a zero on the blackboard, I kept thinking it looked just like the owl's eyes. <laughs> I couldn't uh. wait to get back home and go and see if it was still there. And it was. And for ages, you know, I would wait to see if I could find the owl. And then I would go and look for, if it wasn't there, I'd go and find it in the in the undergrowth. You know, you go into the woods and find it hiding. And the great thing that, that I learned very early on was that blackbirds scold madly. And they will show you where owls are if you follow their scolding and look up into the trees. Nine times out of ten, you'll find an owl sitting there. So blackbirds are the noisy neighbours of the sylvan environment that uh, give away a lot. I think owls get very fed up with them. I love that. This, yeah, the sort of communities. Yeah, the local owls are. Follow the blackbirds. Wrens and robins get pretty cross too, and they do a lot of scolding. It's what I, we call Twitter here. We say Twitter's very active, you know, and uh, it's usually because there's an owl in the garden up to no good. Speaking of these birds, I mean, I think tawnies, as an aside, they seem to get themselves into quite a lot of mischief in terms of needing a bit of help. The reason for that is that they're the one, the most common species of owl for a start, but they're also the owl that has really learned to live alongside man, which, as we both know, is not very easy. And uh, they've adapted quite well to living in the urban environment. But, of course, that comes at a price because they get themselves into mischief. They get caught in the slipstream of traffic. They get hit on the roads. And of all the casualties I have, it's the tawny owl is the most frequently brought to me. They are incredible survivors. I have nothing but admiration uh, for Tawnies. In fact, one little story that you might find interesting is a lovely story of a lorry driver who was coming out of Norwich late one winter's night, and he was going to drive overnight up to Edinburgh. I think it's about 400 miles. And he hit this owl as he pulled onto the motorway. So he drew up onto the hard shoulder to see if he could find it because he was a real bird lover and couldn't see it anywhere so he just presumed it had gone away and was either okay or it died. Anyway when he got to Edinburgh the mechanic in the um, depot said you've got a dead bird stuck in your grill of your lorry at the front. Anyway they want to have a look and the bird was still alive so it had managed 400 miles in the dark in the freezing conditions as the figurehead in this lorry. Just extraordinary. So I was handed this out and um, later I let it go. Lovely. Wasn't there an owl that travelled over with a Christmas tree? I think it was a sore wet owl and they're very, very tiny. I, I did see a photograph. Somebody sent me a picture of it. Poor little thing. Yeah, they chopped the tree down and this wee owl must have been so terrified. It must have just clung on. Rather better than a fairy on the top of the Christmas tree, I think. So Paula, you know, this love of animals and a real curiosity about the natural world, but how then does that translate to you as a as an adult person and, and the work that you now do kind of basically rescuing and rehabilitating sick and poorly animal? How, how did that sort of stay such a core part of your life and how did you get to your first rescue, I suppose? Well, I suppose once I got to um, sort of bigger school, I realised and was pretty much told that scientifically my brain was absolutely useless. So I've learned very early on that there was no way I was going to be a vet because you cannot be bad at science. You really have to get straight A's in everything. And maths was a real bogey, which I kept failing. So I was very disappointed in that. But then I began to, I went and worked 
um, at one school at Gordonston, we had a community service and you could work pretty much anywhere in the community. So myself and another boy, um, we went off and we asked the local vet if he could have two of us to help. So I started working with this lovely vet and he was brilliant because he would ring up quite a lot and say, oh, um, I, I really need Polly to come out. I'm doing a lambing and I need an assistant. Um, but he also made it very clear that, you know, this was often so that I could skive maths. And uh, he made it quite clear that actually it was all very well skiving maths. But if I really wanted to be a vet, I would have to get my head around maths. But it was pretty obvious I was never going to. So I carried on. So I started with him. And then I worked in a zoo just after I left school. I went and worked looking after all that animal husbandry in this fantastic little zoo. And I learned quite a lot there because members of the public bought an awful lot of injured wildlife in. And I suddenly found that that was a real interest for me. You know, we used to get badgers and foxes and actually grey squirrels at that time. No red squirrels in the particular area where I was, which was Northamptonshire. And they had so many things coming in all the time. So I learned quite a lot. And then I went on a couple of wildlife rehabilitation courses. I went down to St Tiggywinkles and did a course there. And then I did a sort of vet nursing course as well. So I suppose that started it. But I always knew that it would be secondary to my work. So it would be a, a hobby, really, that I would do alongside my work. But of course, the two really go together because often some of the things that I get give me subjects to write about. So it's really a way of life. And the rehab is, you know, there are people who have far more creatures coming in than me, but people like the SSPCA. But it's very interesting because you never know what's going to turn up next. I mean, this summer we had such a lot of injured wildlife, but usually at the end of the summer, we always get a phone call from somebody saying, oh, I've got a penguin in my garden. And that's uh, usually a guillemot. <laughs> you didn't. But we do every year. Oh. And it's always hilarious because it's oh. one of the big and these poor young guillemots, because we're as far from the sea in Aberfeldy as we could possibly be. And it's very entertaining because these young guillemots, poor things, end up, you know, in gardens in the middle of places like Aberfeldy. So they're completely off course. It happens every year that these people phone me up, you know, different people. And they do look like penguins, but uh, we get that. And we get all sorts of creatures which when they get here turn out to not be what we've been told they are so it's always fairly exciting and of course a lot of things die straight away I mean you're up against it and you know have a very large failure rate but you hope that you can put something back and that you know the successes make up for all the losses and it's all about a sort of improvising too because often you know we've got to find what does that particular thing need and the housing and the medicine and the food and everything's so different a good lesson in traveling and hope i suppose when a when a sickly road traffic accident victim comes in it depends on you know a lot of birds get broken wings if the brake is on a joint then it's well beyond me trying to fix it but quite a lot of things have only been badly bruised and are stunned and often just a few days in the warm dark quiet with good food will be enough for them to recover and then be released fairly quickly but you know obviously there are exceptions there are some things which are in for a long, long time and then go back to the wild. And other things that the hardest thing, I think, is probably when you have something for a long, long time and then suddenly it dies. And that's something that I always tell friends who are doing the same thing. It can sometimes surprise you just when you think something's thriving and then suddenly it dies. But of course, you don't know what's going on inside a lot of the time. 
Yeah, I, wa- I wanted to ask you about some of the menagerie you've had around this summer. I th- I've, I've seen some pictures and there's been some characters in there. Do you want to tell us who's who's living nearby just now? Well, we got three fantastic tiny baby barn owls um, in the middle of lockdown. And I was rung up by the retired wildlife crime officer who is um, a very good friend. And he told me about these baby barn owls. And I said, but I can't travel. You know, they're, they're half an hour away and we're not allowed to go. He said, well, it's, it's wildlife, Polly. It's really important. And if you get stopped, you know, just, just say it's important. So, so we went to this house. The poor barn owls had fallen through the ceiling. The people who owned this house were very worried about these wee barn owls. So we had those to begin with. Then we had great fun because they all survived and we took them back to the same farm to be released because they'd had barn owls on that farm for many, many years. That was really positive because it was a lovely family and they were so excited to get these barn owls back. And they did a great job because they made a, a special enclosure inside one of the buildings, one of the farm buildings, where the barn owls were housed for about three or four weeks and they fed them every day. So they got used to coming back for food, which is really important because you can't hand rear something and give it huge amounts of food and then shove it out cold and stop its food source because that'll just end in tears. So they did a brilliant job. So that was a real team effort. That was really nice. And then in the 1st of June, I was walking up above the farm and I saw what I thought was a moth-eaten fur coat lying in the middle of the track. It was a very, very hot morning and I'd gone out walking early because I knew it was going to be really scorching. And there lying in the middle of the track, just very close to the farm, was a red deer calf. I phoned up Eva because I had three collies with me who were trying to be helpful, but I have to say not being very helpful. And Eva came puffing up the hill with a big blanket and we had taken the decision that we were going to lift this calf because she was really dehydrated and covered in flies and ticks. And I've got a big soft spot for red deer calves. I've got a 10-year-old hind who we rescued as well. Somebody brought her to us 10 years ago, and she's a real character, Ruby. So I've always quite fancied having another one, and I just couldn't believe that we found one right close to the farm. But the night before, we'd been sitting in the garden having a drink, and we heard somebody roaring and screaming and yelling at a dog. So I think what had happened was that her mother, there's a lot of red deer just above the farm, and I think her mother had been chased off. So she obviously wasn't coming back. Normally I tell people to leave deer calves or deer fawns where they are. But uh, anyway, so Cloudy is now ruling the roost. Uh, She's not living with Ruby yet because she's too little. She still gets uh, two bottles a day, one at breakfast and one at bedtime. And um, she is just absolutely adorable. And when I was writing A Scurry of Squirrels, my new book, uh, Cloudy sat under my desk in the doorway of the shed, uh, very comfortable on a sheep's fleece and uh, chewing the cud and keeping me company. She's, she was instrumental, it sounds like, to the writing of the yeah, book. Yeah. Well, I wrote um, half of Fauna Scotica with, in the same situation with Ruby, when she because that was 10 years ago. So it's really quite funny. I'm not tempted to write a book about deer, though. I don't think so. <laughs> Yeah, so I, was, I, I did want to ask a bit more about a scurry of squirrels, and that was um, sort of having cared for three tiny red squirrels. Do you want to say more about that for yeah. us? Well, we've I've had reared quite a lot of squirrels over the years now, but three years ago I received the youngest red squirrels that I've ever had, and we reckon they were five days old maximum, and they were just absolutely minute. And they'd come from Athel Palace Gardens, um, the hotel in Pitlochry. And a friend of mine is the gardener there, and he had found them. 
the dray had been pulled down, they were lying underneath the tree. So he left the dray with the babies in it, hoping the mother would come back. But of course, they were really vulnerable to dogs or cats or birds of prey. So anyway, he, he brought them round. And when I saw them, I nearly had a fit. I thought, there's no way I'm going to manage to rear them. But what was extraordinary was they were so keen to feed. They were absolutely amazing. So I had a whole summer of um, my whole life just completely revolving around squirrels. And when they were very little, Obviously, they needed feeding every two or three hours. So I had to take them in a basket with our hot water bottle and all the accoutrements wherever I went. And they actually came to a book event in the Highland Bookshop in Fort William. And I had quite a giggle to myself as I was walking down. It was in August, Fort William High Street with a lidded picnic basket, you know, under my arm. And it had three little red squirrels in it. And they had their bottle inside the office of the the Highland Bookshop. So I think it's the, probably the first time squirrels have had a bottle in a bookshop. Very nice. Patricia Highsmith, the writer, used to attend book parties with um, snails in her handbag. With snails? Um, just oh, to give her some, someone... Because she's quite a strange person, I think. She, she would say to people it was someone to talk to at the party. <laughs> <laughs> well, it did go... Years ago, I had a hilarious night, a very cold late summer night. That I was invited to some terribly posh ball. And it was one of these things I really didn't want to go to. It was just completely not my thing at all. And I had these tiny baby hedgehogs. I was sitting at a table with some quite oh, serious people and the conversation was a bit serious. It was all a bit hard going and I was kept looking at my watch. Anyway, I had intended to go out in my, my silk outfit to go out to the car and feed these baby hedgehogs when, you know, in a couple of hours' time. But it was so bloody cold that instead I just thought, oh, to hell with it. I'm just going to go and feed them back at the table. So I had these tiny hedgehogs. They really were minute. And I started to bottle feed them with these little syringes with teats on the end at the table. And, you know, all those people just completely changed. They stopped trying to be something they weren't. They just were themselves and they were in raptures over these hedgehogs. And, you know, from then on, we just had a fabulous night. Wonderful. You can't keep kind of an act up when there's a load of baby hedgehogs. Absolutely. It just sorted everybody out. It got us all down to the best level. Yeah. Yeah. Just great. That's what I do. You know, you see people who are really quite tough and hard sort of people. And when there's animals, they just, it just, they melt, I think. It's brilliant. Now, you said, I want to talk to you about your, your writing, Polly, but you said something interesting there that you don't think you'll write about deer. When does it become apparent that some of these characters will be the chief interest of a book? And why not deer, say? What what makes you not want to write about um, a subject? Well, I suppose the squirrel book, if we start with that, I've been passionate about squirrels since I was sent away to a horrible boarding school that I really hated. And I reckon the squirrels saved me because growing up in Arden American, we had so much wildlife, but we didn't have red squirrels. And then I got sent at the age of eight and a half to a boarding school um, near Dunkeld. And I suddenly saw that the garden was full of squirrels. So I've been fascinated by red squirrels since that time. And obviously, I've had quite a lot to do with them. And I did a book with Scott and the Big Picture a few years ago with the wildlife photographer, Neil McIntyre, on squirrels. But it was very much a photography book. So it was Neil's photographs. And my text was part of it, but quite a small part of it. And when I was doing that, I thought, gosh, there's so much more. You know, there's all the history, the natural history. Because, I mean, up until the 60s, we were still shooting red squirrels. I mean, some estates were culling dozens of red squirrels. I mean, it's quite astonishing to think that. I mean, that's in my lifetime. 
So there was all that history, and we used to cull them because we thought they ruined forestry. We used to cull them because we wanted to make fur coats out of them. I mean, it takes quite a lot of squirrels to make a fur coat. Then there was a sort of history of them being used as taxidermy specimens. There was so much, plus my own stories. And then I also wanted to link it with the fact that we need connected habitat all over the country. And that's the way that we can ensure the, a future of for the red squirrel in this country, but not only the red squirrel, all the other creatures that share the habitat from the tiny things right up to the very big things. So it just seemed apparent. And then Berlin, who are fantastic, are always saying, you know, what are you going to write next? And after a richness of Martin's, which involved other people's story, uh, other people, Les and Chris Humphrey's story, I sort of realised that I really wanted to do my own story and my own story of what I've done here, because in 20 years I've planted about 5,000 trees, um, including all the hedges and things. And it's been quite astonishing to see what has happened with the wildlife and how it's all come back. So we never had squirrels when I first came here. They were in the area, but they never came to the garden. And I mean, there were eight or nine here this morning and badgers come into the garden. And it was also telling the story of some of the, the rehabilitation, some of the particular stories. I mean, I've got... Uh, two amazing little red squirrels on the day of the Dunblane disaster. And I will always remember that because those squirrels really helped us through one of the most devastatingly gloomy, unhappy, black periods of our, of Scotland's history, really. That was just appalling, all that. So squirrels are such cheerful things. And they're so full of the devil as well. It just seemed a natural progression to write about them. Deer, um, I, I'd love to write about deer because I've been fascinated by deer for a very long time, but there's other very, very good books on deer already out there. So I think it's always quite important to not clash with other things. And so I think that's probably why, although I've spent a lot of time learning about deer and always learning more, I um, I, th I think probably they won't be the subject of a book on their own. Who knows? Because I quite like to mix the humour and the anecdote with the natural history. You know, I don't want it because I'm not a scientist. Um, and I always make that very clear in my work that, you know, it's very much anecdotal. It's, you know, I suppose you'd call me a field naturalist. It's what I've learned on the hoof since childhood. So I suppose that's different to somebody who's um, giving you a lot of scientific stuff. You know, I put a little bit in, but it's usually somebody else's science. I wanted to ask you, Polly, just you know, that idea of the squirrels during the Dunblane disaster and, and for you when you were at school and having a difficult time. It seems like nature has really sort of risen to an occasion for a lot of people, maybe quite new to it during this particular very, very strange year. Um, do you think we're getting better again at, at centering nature in our lives? Do you think things have shifted either because of COVID or, or otherwise in your view? Has it changed or is it changing for the better again? Um, I think that's a brilliant question and it's a very poignant question and it's something I've, you know, when I submitted my book a few weeks ago, I put that question in. I think what I'm slightly dubious about is that many people have found nature during the COVID outbreak, and they maybe didn't ever notice these things before. I'm really hoping and really hoping that those people will stick with it and realise how important it is that really without nature we're nothing. But I am always slightly cynical because I do think as we're able to go back to doing quite a lot of things we did before, we may start disregarding it again. And I think we're now at such a, a crossroads with the natural world. You know, we really, really need to nurture it as we never have before. We've got to start 
planting for the future. We've got to start connecting habitat. For example, we've lost 98% of our traditional hay meadows. And I don't want to be depressing. Those hay meadows, those wildflower meadows, places like Yorkshire and the Durham Dales and many parts of Scotland, those, those were so important because they were at the root of everything and a wonderful place for pollinators and bees and thousands of insects that you hardly notice. This summer, there's a beautiful little meadow right next to our farm. And I spent hours and hours and hours in that meadow. And I just realized that, you know, it's all about these connected habitats. You know, we need meadows, we need wetlands, we need hedges and all these things. And I think often people think that nature will move somewhere else if they remove a pond or a hedge or whatever. And that's not the case. Nature's getting more and more squeezed. And I hope people will will really respect nature and think about it more. I mean, it has been an absolute panacea for all our problems this, this year. I think, you know, many of my friends have said, gosh, it's been so beautiful to be out in the natural world. And I never noticed all these little things before. And I think that's the point. It's about noticing all the little things which are right on our doorsteps, even in the middle of the city. Yeah, no, I would I would completely agree with that. I've always liked being outdoors, not to the, the extent of, of you, I, I imagine, but I've always enjoyed being outside. And I think this year it's partly because all the other backdrops have stopped changing you know we are just exactly where we are and you've got to kind of enjoy the cinema of your very near world you know but thinking about chatting to you though I, I was thinking it's um of, um of Mary Oliver the poet her um, idea of paying exquisite attention and that strikes me as that's something that you do in your work it's just looking at something just very very closely well, I remember going to Africa um, a few years ago and there was an Australian mother and daughter and they were really lovely and they'd been all over the world, far more travelling than I'd ever done. And at the end of <laughs> 10 days, this was something that I'll always remember and it isn't singing my own praise, but it was something that really moved me. And the mother who was, you know what Australians are like, they're quite fulsome and loud, a lot of them, and, and f- you know, they're, they're up front, they tell you what they think, they're not sort of um they don't hold back and she came up to me and threw her arms around me and gave me an enormous hug and she was in tears and she said I want to thank you so much and I said what for and she said you've made us look at things she said before that we were going around the world ticking off lists of the big animals and she said this week we saw little tiny things that were in the the long grasses or in the water that we'd never seen before. We began to look at all the little things too. And I think that's the point. And that comes back to the point you made. You know, there are all these small things going on in our gardens. There's all these lives going on. I mean, I got completely hooked on dung beetles, (laughs) which seem a very unromantic subject this summer. And I found a dung beetle in our field. And in fact, I'm going to write a little piece about it for my nature column I do every month. It was absolutely covered in mites. You could hardly see the beetle for these gingery brown mites. And I was fascinated to learn that these beetles sometimes get in, you know, afflicted with all these mites, but the mites are doing really well because they're getting a free ride round going about. I mean, it's just extraordinary this relationship between these beetles. So once you start looking, it really is incredible. And of course, birdsong too. A lot of people have been talking about birdsong. And that's been incredible just because I think they've been, I don't think there's been more of it. I think perhaps we've just had more, we've been listening and the traffic was so much better so you could hear it. 
Thank you so much to Polly for chatting to us. Look out for A Scurry of Squirrels, which is due out next summer with Berlin. But in the meanwhile, I would firmly encourage you to look at Polly's website at pollypular.com and check out some of those other books. The latest one, A Richness of Martins, was longlisted for the Highland Book Prize in 2019. Some lovely Christmas gift ideas in there. And thank you to you for listening. We'll look forward to being back with you again very soon. But in the meanwhile, take good care. Bye-bye for now.